Hello there, and welcome to Critics Allowed, a six-part podcast celebrating 10 years of Critics, the online review site of the British Society for 18th Century Studies, or BSEX for short. I'm your host for this first episode, Dr Adam James Smith. I'm BSEX Critics Editor and a Senior Lecturer in 18th Century Literature at York St John University. The 18th century was the first great age of criticism, and it was in this spirit that the Critics website was founded in 2011, providing entertaining, informative and provocative reviews of events and media that are of interest to scholars of the 18th century. On the Critics website, plays, concerts, operas, exhibitions, films, broadcasts and any other online resources are all considered in-depth by experts in the field. Since the first review was published on the 26th of April 2011, Critics has been host to over 580 reviews. Yes, that's right, 581 reviews at the time of recording. With reviews coming in from scholars at every career level, from PhD candidates all the way through to professors. In some cases, we've had regular reviewers who submitted reviews to us when they were early career researchers, and again a few years later when they were readers. To celebrate this first decade of critics, we've invited former reviewers to perform for us their past reviews, and all of these reviews have been handpicked by our current staff of specialist sub-editors. We'll be releasing a new episode every month for the next six months, and each will feature a combination of three of these historic reviews covering either music, media, theatre or fine and decorative art. In this, our inaugural episode, we'll be hearing Andrew McGuinness's 2015 review of a BBC Radio Extra documentary hosted by Sue Perkins titled Words, 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 Johnson's Dictionary. As well as that, we'll be hearing Anna Brunton's 2020 review of Instruments of Time and Truth, Musical Culture and Empire in 18th Century London. And we'll also be hearing Amy Lynn's very recent review of Centuries in the Making, the first significant monographic exhibition of the work of Grinling Gibbons to be mounted in over three decades. Our first reviewer is Dr Andrew McGuinness, reader in Romanticism at Edge Hill University. He's currently an AHRC ECR Leadership Fellow on the project The Romantic Ridiculous, which aims to take romantic studies from the sublime to the ridiculous. He's published widely on Romantic period women's writing, Gothic fiction and children's literature, and he's also co-director of EHU19, the Centre for 19th Century Studies. Here, he performs his review of Words, 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 Johnson's Dictionary, first published on the 5th of June 2015. Hello, my name is Andy McInnes. I wrote this review I'm about to read out to you way back in 2015 when I was a mere lecturer in 18th century studies at Edge Hill and I'd recently started and I uh, did a lot of these reviews for Adams. Thank you for inviting me onto this podcast, mainly as a kind of virtuous procrastination. So it felt like I was doing something when I was avoiding doing um, other things and I really enjoyed doing them. And this one I'd completely forgotten about writing, but I'm glad I did. And I hope you enjoy reliving it or listening to it for the first time. The comedian and presenter Sue Perkins hosts an introduction to Samuel Johnson's A Dictionary of the English Language, 1755, through the conceit of a tour of his home in London, starting with the statue of Johnson's cat outside his home and climaxing at the top of the house in the garret in which he compiled the dictionary. On the journey through Johnson's home with a brief excursion to the British Library, Perkins is joined by a curator from the house itself, 
Henry Hitchens, a biographer of Johnson, John Simpson, a former editor of the Oxford English Dictionary, and Kate Thompson, an antiquarian bookseller who introduces Perkins to the earliest English dictionaries held in the British Library. The tour is accompanied by conversational snippets from Johnson's dictionary, beginning with his definition of preface. It includes some of his famous entries, such as a harmless drudge for lexicographer, and ends with a moving excerpt from Johnson's own preface to the dictionary, complaining of the sometimes painful drudgery of the task and hoping for a claim. Money emerges as a significant theme in the programme, beginning with Perkins' opening discussion of the thickness of Johnson's front door. Stephanie Pickford, the house's curator, introduced by Johnson's definition of the term, explains that the door functioned as Johnson's first line of defence, both from criminals in the absence of a regular police force, and also from debtors, which I think I mean uh, debt collectors, given the parlous state of Johnson's finances at the time. Indeed, Johnson's financial situation is given as one of the reasons he accepted the brief to compile a dictionary from London's booksellers. A discussion of changing ideas of literary patronage at the time, with Johnson himself moving from noble patronage to a more modern publishing system over the course of writing the dictionary, would have been helpful here. Perkins is an able, amiable and engaging host for the discussion about Johnson's achievement, contextualised with a detailed look at earlier dictionaries and what makes Johnson's unique. Discussing Johnson's inclusion of quotations exemplifying the use of the words he included in the dictionary, suggests that Johnson invented the idea of English literature itself. Although perhaps overstated, this is an intriguing perspective on Johnson's role in canon formation, which would have been worth pursuing in more detail. In fact, most of my criticisms of the programme boil down to wanting more. More context on 18th century literary patronage, more thought on Johnson and canonicity, more of Johnson's more zany definitions, for example, to worm, to deprive a dog of something nobody knows what under his tongue, which is said to prevent him, nobody knows why, from running mad. To be left wanting more, on the other hand, is probably the best compliment I could pay to this half-hour taster of Johnson's achievements and legacy. Thank you very much. Our next reviewer is Anna Brunton, who teaches piano, recorder and bassoon, and is an examiner for Trinity College of Music and is examined all over the world. She's also a mature student studying for an interdisciplinary DPhil in Literature and Arts at the University of Oxford, where she's supervised by William White. Here she performs her review of Instruments of Time and Truth, Musical Culture and Empire in 18th Century London, first published on the 27th of November 2020. With COVID-19 affecting live musical performances around the world, musicians have had to be imaginative in their response. During August 2020, the Oxford-based Baroque Orchestra, Instruments of Time and Truth, got together with Warwick University for a series of four concerts, exploring the theme of musical culture and empire in 18th century London. The series is funded by the Warwick University Humanities Research Fund and the Connecting Cultures Global Research Fund, also at the University of Warwick. The series reflects current historians' interest in the links between Europe and the wider world, and each concert explores the lives of a particular musician and their patrons who were living in London during the 18th century. Generously, the orchestra have made their series available online forever, as they put it. The series as a whole was introduced with a talk by Maxine Berg of the University of Warwick, and the text can be found online. In the talk, Professor Berg begins by reflecting on the wide-ranging maritime links between Britain and its overseas colonies and then focuses on its centre, London. The London season, when the aristocracy and gentry were present, was marked by a series of cultural events, including concert series and operas, which were available as such venues as theatres, pleasure gardens 
and later from the 1760s, the new concept of specialist concert rooms, such as the Hanover Square Concert Room. London was, as a result, an important musical centre and drew many international composers and performers. Berg quotes Johann Mattheson. He who in the present time wants to make a profit out of music betakes himself to England. The Italians exalt music, the French liven it, the Germans strive after it, the English pay for it well. Professor Berg's lecture also mentions the role of black musicians, such as Ignatius Sancho, 1729-1780, a former slave who became a composer and musician, and the virtuoso violinist George Polgreen Bridgetower, 1778-1860, who was supported by the Prince Regent. The concert series as a whole is a feast of riches, and there is little space in this review to do justice to each one. The first concert, on the 4th of August, music by Handel, Abel and J.C. Bach and was performed by Christopher Bucknell on harpsichord and John Rees on viol. This began with a lively performance on harpsichord of William Babel's arrangement of Handel's Overture to Rinaldo. The origin of the keyboard overture has been traced back to the later 17th century but these arrangements cannot be described as transcriptions. They are creative reworkings. This is especially evident in Babel's work, which makes use of the interpolation of virtuoso runs and ornamentation to enrich the texture. The choice of this overture is pertinent to the theme of the series, Links Between Britain and the World, as the 1711 performance of Rinaldo itself marked the arrival of Handel in London. We tend to think of Handel as British, as he spent most of his musical career in England. However, he was born in Germany. The second concert was again performed by the harpsichordist Christopher Bucknell and also featured Baroque violin, played by Bojan Cicic. Titled Musical Journeys, Portfolio Careers, it traces the lives of two musicians, composer and violinist Main Janovich, 1747-1804, who used the Italian name Giovanni Gionovich for the London market and who had escaped to England from France during the Revolution, and Ignatius Sancho, who had been mentioned in Maxine Berg's talk. Sancho's started life as a slave and one biography suggests he was actually born on a slave ship before he came to England and was supported in London by the Montague family. Literary B-sex members will be familiar with Sancho's published letters, including a correspondence with Lawrence Stern about slavery. In the concert, Bucknell performs minuets from Sancho's volume of Minuets printed in 1779 with the subtitle Composed by an African in the first edition. Aimed at the domestic market, they were to be played on the harpsichord alone or accompanying flute, violin or even natural horn. B-sex members interested in 18th century dance may find Sancho's 12 Country Dances, 1779, interesting, as it includes simple descriptions of the dance steps. This inclusion also suggests the volume was aimed at the domestic market. Sancho's minuets and country dances are simple in harmony and rather generic in style. However, they are of curiosity value. The second half of the concert explores the music of Gionovich, who had worked in Paris and also Vienna and St. Petersburg, working for Catherine the Great. The spoken introduction to the section by the violinist Chichik alludes to changing attitudes to the role of the musician in Europe as a result of the French Revolution. In France, performers had been regarded more as servants, 
although I would suggest this was not so true in entrepreneurial England. Djurovic had also taught the Afro-European violinist George Bridgetower, 1778 to 1860, mentioned in Berg's introductory talk. This concert includes a virtuoso performance of Djurovic's air, from Villoir's de Julie, a set of variations based on a theme from an opera by Desaird, 1742-1792. Stylistically, it sounds like an improvisation and reflects the performance demands of the time when violinists would improvise on themes shouted out by the audience. The third concert explores wind and brass. The flautist Jonathan Slade performs pieces from A Gentleman's Pocket Companion to the Flute. The oboist Mark Bajant explores how the use of the oboe travelled from the court of Louis XIV to Handel's water music. And Emily White looks at how the trombone was once ubiquitous in England, even in cathedral music making. Having had three concerts of solo music, the final concert in the season ends with a socially distanced performance of music for strings, including works by Handel and Boyce, making one long for the return of live music making. The concert series produced another essay entitled Job in Security for Musicians in 18th Century Britain. This is aimed at those interested in the idea of portfolio careers and how, like today, 18th century musicians generated income, or not, in a variety of contexts. Overall, the series forms an interesting combination of social history, empire, culture and music, with the added benefit of excellent performances which enliven these academic concepts. Our final reviewer is Amy Lynn. Amy is undertaking a collaborative doctoral partnership on a project titled Art and Aristocracy in Late Stuart England at the University of Oxford and the Tate, where she also worked on a 2020 exhibition titled British Baroque, Power and Illusion. She's a historian and art historian of the long 18th century with a particular interest in portraits, gardens and interiors, as well as the gender dynamics of patronage. Here she performs her review of Centuries in the Making, the first significant monographic exhibition of the work of Grindling Gibbons to be hosted in over three decades. Incomparable, superb, stupendous and beyond all description, Grindling Gibbons's contemporaries did not hold back on the superlatives. The stellar lineup of works on display in Centuries in the Making, his first significant monographic exhibition for over three decades, may well elicit similar praise from 21st century viewers. Grinling Gibbons was a highly successful carver in stone and wood, but it is in the latter medium that his reputation principally rests today. Familiar favourites, such as the lace cravat later owned and occasionally worn by Horace Walpole, the cherubic font cover from All Hallows by the Tower, London, and country house over mantles with tumbling cascades of flowers, game birds and crustacea, continue to enchant audiences with their delicacy and dexterity. They've been brought together by the Grinling Gibbon Society as part of a year-long programme to mark the tercentenary of the death on the 3rd of August 1721 of England's most celebrated woodcarver. The success of this exhibition lies in its combination of aesthetic delight with a thorough contextualisation of Gibbons's influences, workshop practices and legacy. Grinling Gibbons, 1648 to 1721, was born in Rotterdam to English parents and although he moved to England at the age of 19, his Dutch apprenticeship was fundamental to the development of his practice. Whilst he may have learnt his technical skills as an apprentice ship carver, a largely overlooked art form, his ornamental compositions were influenced by the popular genre of still life painting. 
the splayed wings of the suspended dead game in Melchior Hondekota's painting are echoed in Gibbons's overmantel carvings from Badminton House, displayed just a few steps away. But even more than his technical and artistic skills, it was Gibbons's introduction of limewood and boxwood as his principal media that revolutionised woodcarving in England. The lightness and softness of these woods, in contrast to the dense oak favoured in the native tradition, enabled him to execute his technical marvels. In doing so, he introduced a new vocabulary of ornamentation that became an integral component of Baroque interiors. Carvings by Gibbons and his followers spread throughout the palaces, country houses, churches and cathedrals of late Stuart England, until his death coincided with a shift in taste away from rich ornamentation and towards a more austere classicism. To his contemporaries, Gibbons was esteemed for his carving in stone as much as in wood. He received commissions for funerary monuments from two archbishops and various noble families, statues of Charles II and James II, and a magnificent, if shockingly Catholic, altarpiece for James II's chapel at Whitehall Palace. Two reliefs of putty that were salvaged from the latter are the sole representatives of Gibbons's stone carving in the exhibition. This was undoubtedly dictated by practical considerations, but nor has Gibbons's work in stone maintained the same level of critical esteem as his wood carving. Silly and supercilious was Margaret Winnie's verdict on his statue of the Sixth Duke of Somerset. The move away from connoisseurship in art historical studies suggests that the time may be ripe for an academic reappraisal of Gibbons's work as a stone carver. His statues and funerary monuments are unlikely ever to enthrall the public in quite the same way, however. At the centre of Gibbons's legacy is a paradox. If Gibbons was such an incomparable genius, why are there so many outstanding wood carvings that have been erroneously attributed to his hand? The curators have successfully charted a course between lauding Gibbons's individual abilities and acknowledging the contribution of his workshop and contemporaries. The answer to Gibbons's preeminence lies in his combination of virtuosic technique with his innovative practices, design skills and business acumen. At the height of his career, his workshop employed 50 assistants but Gibbons managed the overarching vision and maintained a firm control. Having introduced his style to England, he trained many hands and inspired others to complete work of near comparable brilliance. That brilliance is amply demonstrated in the works by contemporary artists inspired by the Gibbons tradition. Rebecca Stevenson's reinterpretation of a still life in lurid polyester, resin and wax, and a pair of ornate prosthetic legs designed by Alexander McQueen and worn on the catwalk by Paralympic sprinter Amy Mullins are just two of the exciting works that directly cite the carver's influence. Phoebe Cummings' ornamental chronology, from 2019, is one of the exhibition's principal eye-catchers, vying for attention with Gibbons' own works. Her suspended bundle of flowers and foliage, crafted from unfired clay, is breathtakingly fragile and intricate. The combination of technical virtuosity and modern design in these artworks is probably the closest approximation that we can have to the effect that Gibbons' works would have had when they were first seen by his contemporaries. Salvaged fragments from St Paul's Cathedral and Hampton Court Palace allow us a close inspection of the construction of his carvings, and throughout the exhibition there is a strong emphasis on making. Linking this to the present, the exhibition also showcases the winners of the GG300 prize for early career sculptors in stone and wood. Gibbons's legacy is further commemorated in a parallel exhibition of recent work in wood and stone at St Mary Abchurch, along with live demonstrations, and then at the Dutch church Austin Friars, both in the City of London. The second floor of Bonham's sale rooms, where Centuries in the Making is hosted, is a well-lit and spacious gallery. However, Although it is widely accessible in theory, free of charge and a stone's throw from Oxford Street, many potential visitors are likely to be intimidated by the exhibition's location in a Bond Street auction house. 
The second venue, Compton Verdi in Warwickshire, will hopefully attract higher footfall. Visitors may be further enticed by the inclusion at Compton Verney of a full-size wooden horse made by Gibbons which once carried an armour-clad figurine of Charles II. Horse or no horse, this exhibition is a rare opportunity to see many of Gibbons's finest works in one place and to marvel anew at the brilliance of the Michelangelo of woodcarving. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening to this instalment of Critics Aloud. If you'd like to read the reviews featured here in their original formats, or indeed explore more reviews by the same author, or any of our reviews, you can find them all at our website, bsex.org.uk forward slash critics reviews. And remember, at bsex, we spell critics with a K, so it's C-R-I-T-I-C-K-S. If you'd like to write to us, or you have a suggestion for something you'd like us to review, please do get in touch with one of our sub-editors. Our sub-editors are Grainne O'Hare for media, so that includes film, TV, podcasts and so on. Brianna Robertson-Kirkland for music. Miriam Al-Jamil for fine and decorative art. And Katie Ask for theatre. You can contact any of us at any time via the B6 Critics website and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. If you're not already a member of B6 but are interested in finding out more about joining our society, visit bsex.org.uk. Membership includes a subscription to our society's quarterly journal, the highly regarded, world-renowned Journal for 18th Century Studies, as well as an invitation to our annual conference and access to a wide range of events, funding and support for 18th century scholars at every career level. If you've enjoyed this podcast and would like to hear more, please let us know by leaving a review wherever you listen to this podcast or by tweeting us at, at bsex. This episode of Critics Allow was edited, produced and hosted by Adam James Smith in association with the British Society for 18th Century Studies. Join us again in a month's time, but for now, goodbye. Thank <laughs> you.